Alright, let's get started then. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We are at the second half of chapter 10, which is verse 32. Mark 10, 32. I'll, I'll let you know soon. Eight ninety seven. Uh eight ninety eight. Ten thirty two. Losing that edge, Zeke. Yeah. Old man. So, yeah, we're going to start reading in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, which is about halfway down on the left-hand side of page 898 there. Um, just as a quick synopsis, Mark is a really, really cool book. It is the shortest of the Gospels. Gospel is an old word that just means good news, and they are the accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Mark was written the shortest after Jesus' Life and so it reads like a really short form news article. It has the least amount of detail and it's all just condensed action. But don't mean, don't mistake that to mean it's not purposeful. Mark arranges what he says in a really specific way to make some really big points, and we're actually going to see that um, again tonight. So, anyway, as I've told you, the Gospel of Mark has a lot of big truths in it, but it's got one major point. And Mark's point is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. He is the one that's going to finally make things right again between people and God. And in making that point, Mark really emphasizes that while Jesus is the Messiah, He's not the Messiah that the Jewish people expected. They had these expectations that the Messiah would be a political revolutionary, would lead a revolt against the Romans. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he spends his time hanging out with the outcasts of society. He goes around healing the sick. He on purpose avoids becoming famous. He doesn't behave like they expected him to. He's the Messiah, but not like you think the Messiah should be. He's doing what he wants, but not what you want him to do. That's Mark's big point. God is different than you expect him to be when he shows up. So, on that note, Mark 10, starting in verse 32, here we go. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, that's a title from the Old Testament Jesus uses for himself. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Verse 35, James and John, those are two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered, Allow us to sit at your right 
and that you're left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Top of page 898 now. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I will drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41. When the ten, those are the other disciples, heard this, the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles and lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, Rabboni is an old Jewish word that means teacher, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. All right, let's go back to the beginning of where we started reading tonight. Look at verse 32. So Mark continues what he's been going with over Jesus. I mean, going, going over with Jesus. With this third time where Jesus has left a place where he's become really popular. He's purposely avoiding becoming famous. And with his disciples, as they're walking toward Jerusalem, it says that the disciples are kind of scared, they're kind of freaked out by the way Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And you might say, why would they be scared about Jesus going to Jerusalem? And Mark answers that question by what Jesus says while they're going to Jerusalem. Look at verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, he means the Romans, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. Think about that. Jesus is being straight up with them and saying, the reason we're going to Jerusalem is because I mean to be killed in Jerusalem. And then he just walks right out in front of them, and they're like struggling to keep up. Isn't that like the most weird counterintuitive thing you can think of? He knows, I'm going to be tortured and killed in this place. And then he's speed walking toward that place. Why? Because that's why Jesus came. We've talked about this almost every week because Mark makes it abundantly clear almost every week that Jesus didn't just come to teach, although he teaches us lots of amazing things about God. He didn't just come to do miracles, although he does miracles. The main reason Jesus showed up was to die. And you might say, why would somebody come to just die? And the answer is because of what Jesus accomplishes in dying for us. 
You and I, the Bible says, repeatedly break God's law. We sin. And the Bible says the consequence of that sin is death. Which means we cannot be with God in heaven. We cannot be part of when God makes everything right for all of forever and experience that joy and that goodness that comes with knowing God forever. But God wants to save us from the consequence of our sin. And so He comes down as a person, as Jesus, who lives a sinless life and then dies in our place, takes the punishment we deserve. And the Bible makes it really clear that anyone who just believes in Jesus, who puts their faith in Him, who says, yeah, Jesus, you're offering me that forgiveness, I want that. Yes, please. That they have it. And so that's why Jesus is so determined to go to Jerusalem, because he, want, he wants to accomplish his mission. The whole reason he came. Now, look at what happens right after that. It's real weird. So starting in verse 35, you get two disciples, some of the two that are talked about the most, James and John, and they come to Jesus and they ask this strange question. Jesus has just told them that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. And yet James and John are like, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem to take over. And so they say, Jesus, when you set up the kingdom, can we be your number one and your number two guys? That's what it means in that culture to sit on somebody's right and left hand, to be like their main assistant people. And Jesus says, nah, you don't really know what you're asking. And you might think the disciples are total idiots for asking that because Jesus literally just told them that the reason he was going to Jerusalem was to die. But you've got to forgive them because it's a huge part of their culture. The disciples and every Jewish person alive at that time grew up under the oppressive thumb of the Roman Empire. And yet they were this high-spirited, really staunchly independent people because of their past. And so they believed that God would deliver them from the Romans. And they looked into the Old Testament and saw God promising to bring Messiah to make everything right. And so when they think about that concept of making everything right, they really only thought about one thing. They thought about the political situation they were in. And they said God making everything right means we're no longer going to be subject to Rome. And so every Jewish little boy and girl grew up with this concept just embedded into their brain from childhood that when the Messiah comes, he's going to lead us out of Roman oppression. That's what he's going to do. So even though Jesus has literally just told them the reason he's going to Jerusalem is to die, they aren't hearing it. Instead, what they hear is Jesus is going to set up He's going to free us from Rome, and we want to be his main guys. We want to be his number one and his number two. Right? Like the whole culture believes this wrong thing. And the thing that they believe that's wrong is actually really, really big. When they would think of the Messiah making everything right, like I said, they just believed, they just thought of that in the political context. They thought about their, their position within the Roman Empire. But God was thinking a lot bigger. God wants to deal with everything. He wants to make everything right. And so what Jesus is coming to fix is the problem of sin separating God and people. He doesn't just want to fix their, I don't know what the normal lifespan is at that time, like their 40 years on earth. He wants to fix their whole eternity. And so Jesus comes not to set up a government, but to die on their behalf so they can be made right with God forever. And then he teaches them something. 
So look at verse 41. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Again, Gentiles in this context primarily means the Roman rulers. And Jesus is saying, you guys look at how those rulers exercise their authority, and they're cruel, and they're mean, and they're tyrannical with it. The people in charge do whatever they can to stay in charge. They abuse their power in order to keep their power. Right? They're not interested in the overall good of the people. They're instead interested in themselves, in their own authority, in their own comfort, in their own wealth. But then Jesus says this, verse 43, But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. So Jesus takes the world's power and authority structure and flips it upside down. And he says, in God's eyes, the greatest people are the people who serve the most. The people who are the biggest deal in the kingdom of God are the people that the world doesn't really regard as a big deal because they're not bragging about themselves. They're not making a big deal about themselves. They're quietly serving And then look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man, again, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is talking about how they're to serve each other and how to serve the lowest. And then look at what happens. They're going into Jericho, which is kind of a medium-sized town that's on the way between where they were and Jerusalem. And there's this blind beggar on the side of the road. And in that society... Blind people weren't cared for at all. Like, our society does a pretty okay job with caring for people with different handicaps, right? Like, we could certainly do better in a whole lot of ways, and you probably know a ton of ways, if, if you know people with handicaps, that the world could be better for them. But we are miles ahead of where these people were at. In their culture, if you were born with any sort of a disability, it was seen as being your fault because you were sinful and you were evil. And so often, the families of people with disabilities would even kick them out and say, we don't want to have anything to do with you. The fact that you're blind, the fact that you're crippled means that you're evil, so we don't want you in our house. And these people from a very young age would be left to fend for themselves. And in that culture, fending for themselves just meant living on the street and being a beggar. And so this guy, as a beggar, do you hear what he's saying? Look at verse uh, 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. See how intolerant they are of the blind guy? Like, all he's trying to do is get Jesus' attention, and they're telling him to shut up. Right? They're like, blind guy, you aren't even worth Jesus' time of hearing you. Why don't you just zip it and let Jesus deal with important things? But did you see what he called Jesus? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Who was, who was Mary's husband? So Mary's the mom of Jesus. What's her husband's name? Joseph, not David. What does the guy mean when he calls Jesus son of David? Anybody know? Yeah, Drew? Uh, he's a descendant of David. 
Yeah, it's a call back to the Old Testament. The second king of Israel was named David. And God had made a promise to David that the Messiah would come from his line, from his lineage. And so when the blind guy calls out publicly Jesus, son of David, he's acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Now, Mark writes this with intentional irony. He mentioned the blindness, and now he mentions the blind guy being able to recognize who Jesus is. And all this is right in the midst of people with sight and with education being blind to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? You kind of you see the overall story irony. All the people who have all the ability to see it, the people with the best perspective, they're blind to the fact of who Jesus is. You've got a blind guy on a corner who's never met Jesus before. He has no problem seeing who Jesus is. And the result... He puts his faith in Jesus. Jesus heals him. All right. I think that's everything you need to know for your groups. Head out.